Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Everybody, I thought I'd leave you a quick message before I start this episode with one of the best and most special, generous, kind, and wonderful people that I ever had the honor of working with and calling my friend, Louis Anderson. I'm not going to spend this moment telling you of how devastated I am or sad. What's the point? We come here and we get to walk and live and love and do whatever we want to do on this earth. And one day, you don't get to do it anymore. And if you're fortunate or one of the fortunate ones that gets to live another day, what you have with you is the memories that you hold dear. And I have hundreds and hundreds of amazing memories of Louis Anderson, most notably a person who when my mother came to town, knowing that he was so special to her, she was such a big fan that he made it a point to take her out to lunch at the Beverly Hills Hotel. One of the greatest memories of my life with my mom was shared with Louis Anderson. Yes, hilarious, incredibly, incredibly funny, gifted, so talented. But in my heart, his generosity towards me and my mom, that I'll never forget. Enjoy the episode. Thank you. What people are really looking for in life is the truth and authenticity of a person. That's what you want. That's what you want. That's when you go, am I going to trust this guy to make this deal for me? Yeah, he's authentic. I trust this guy. He's authentic. He's going to make the deal. And what I was trying to get to was, as a comic, you need help to get to your authentic place.
Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me. It's Barry Katz, and I am live on the Las Vegas Strip here at the Wynn Hotel and Casino with my guest, legendary comedian Louis Anderson. As one of 11 children growing up in the Twin Cities, Louis crafted routines that rang true for audiences while reducing them to helpless fits of laughter. Performances that led him from his career as a counselor of troubled children to the first place trophy winner at the 1981 Midwest Comedy Competition. Henny Youngman, who hosted the competition, recognized Louis and offered him a job as a writer, providing invaluable experience that soon put Louis in his own spotlight in stages all over the country. A few years later, when he moved to Los Angeles, Johnny Carson invited Louis to make his national television debut on The Tonight Show in 1984, and the rest, my friends, is history. What followed was a string of enormously powerful performances on Letterman, Leno, Comic Relief, as well as Showtime and HBO specials, making Louis a household name and opening doors for him as an actor, where he starred in television shows like Grace Under Fire, Touched by an Angel, and Chicago Hope, and had incredibly memorable film roles in Coming to America with Eddie Murphy and the classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. After that, he was the host of the hilarious comedy showcase, the late-night series that followed Saturday Night Live for over three years. In 1995, Louis put his creative energies to work on the Saturday morning animated series Life with Louis, which was a long-running series about his childhood and his life with his father, which won three Humanitas Prizes for writing on a children's animated series, making him the only three-time recipient of this award. It also earned a Genesis Award for its depiction of the proper treatment of animals, and most significantly, it rewarded Louis with two Emmy Awards. As an author, his best-selling books have been really powerful, most memorably the New York Times bestseller Dear Dad Letters from an Adult Child, a collection of alternatively touching and outrageous letters from Louis to his late father, followed by Goodbye Jumbo, Hello Cruel World, a self-help book, and the book, the third installment on family, The F Word, How to Survive Your Family, which has done incredibly well as well. Louis Anderson has sold out in his career an unprecedented seven consecutive New Year's Eve performances, which averaged over 7,000 people a performance during that stretch. Here in Las Vegas, he's been performing for over 10 years on a regular basis and packing the crowds in here. His podcast, which he just started, the Louis Anderson podcast, is one of the highest rated podcasts on iTunes. And in the world of funny, when it comes to comedy, Louis isn't just a great comedian. He's one of the hottest, best-selling comedians in the history of our country, sustaining a lasting admiration and draw to his loyal fans for over three decades. If there was a Hall of Fame for comedians... Louis would be a unanimous first ballot inductee. Please welcome my guest today, the amazing, the legendary, my friend, Louis Anderson. Thank you, Barry. It's so good to see you. It's As awesome. always. I, last time I saw you, I think it was Beverly Hills. I came in and had some soup <laughs> with you right. That's at that right. little restaurant there. That's and right. it was very good soup. <laughs> but the bread was better, wasn't it? 
Isn't it interesting? Isn't that why people eat soup so they can get bread? (laughs) That's what I always think. People really don't want soup, but they sure want bread. If you could dunk the bread in the soup, that's as close to soup as you really want to get. What's really depressing is is that I am remembered for food as opposed to my conversation. (laughs) Well, no, Barry, uh, you know, I would have described you um, as the Tony Robbins of managers. And that's a compliment. Wow. You know, that you are, you have a great ability to s- zero in on the broken, mangled <laughs> psyche, you know, because comics are wonderful people, but there's, their, their psyches have been broken or mangled or, and they have not given up, which is a triumph to every comic, right? Yes. But you have been able to get in there and go, hey, you know, you know, you're, you're worth, you're worth it. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's important to comics. I think comics are looking for recognition and that's why they're out in front of a crowd, obviously. But also, you know, I want my manager, I want him to say I can do great things. Even if I'm being delusional, I want him to say I can do great things because how can you do great things if you don't have support around it, you can't do great things if you don't have support. If you're able to do great things without support, then you're really something. But I would say the majority of people find people that can help them propel themselves to that great thing because being doing great stuff is hard. You like you say, if you if things are going well, that's easy. That's easy, right? <laughs> right. But if things are going poorly, if you're if you're on the stage of a sitcom that you and I go back to it, why didn't I have this? Why wasn't I better? Why wasn't I better as a comic to stand up for myself? And I think you do that too. I think you stand up. And you go, listen, hey, this is who this guy is. We're going to make the sitcom this way. We don't really care what you guys think at the network. We don't really care what you guys think. As writers, here's the guy, here's his character. Now, vice versa, sometimes those people are right because the person's being inauthentic. But one thing that you have, Barry, is a great ability to spot authenticity. You have a, you have a, whatever that sense is where you go, this is a real thing here. Thanks. This is a real thing. Occasionally I talk to comics who go, Barry, I talk to Barry Katz and I go, yes, because Barry saw you. And I see those same people. We see them. They're orbs, they're jewels, they're diamonds, they're sapphires, they're, you know, and, you know, all great stones in the raw, you'd walk right by them. But once you get some work done, you know, shined up and cut and, you know, put some facets into these human beings, you know, because artists are, uh, you know, they rise out of the ashes. That's what great artists do. And usually it's in ashes that took place in childhood. You know, you'll always hear, you know, like uh, I was listening to an actress on a show, a sports podcast, believe it or not. I think it was who are the guys in uh, Florida, the, uh, with the dad, um, Libertard. Oh, right. Dan Levitard. Yeah, yeah. And his dad, and uh, one of the actresses on and said, uh, you know, and I, I don't remember her name, but she said, uh, 
they asked her about her her life, and she said, uh, "When I was a kid, um, we were poor, and I can remember, you know, we got our clothes at the Goodwill, and I can remember uh, having to move out of our house and move into the basement and live on a dirt floor in our basement, take the the uh, go to the Goodwill, then take the rapid transit everywhere, those city bus, and I thought, oh my God." Who would ever have known that from this beautiful actress, that that's the underneath. No wonder she's a great actress. She had to play a role of not being that kid her whole life and try to be something more. So I think artists always do that, and I think you service those artists really well. Well, thanks, Louis. Coming from you, that's like getting a a review in the New York Times. Jesus. Oh, yeah, sweet. But it's um, true. You know, I was talking to Abraham, as you know. Abraham, Abraham wonderful, yeah. who works uh, works with you, with your yeah. company, uh, Buried Treasure, Treasure Entertainment. Entertainment, yes. And, you know, we we loved working with you. We produced a lot of stuff. Yeah. Tremendous amount of stuff. And and he said to say a big hello. And uh-huh. uh, just how much, how much synergy we all had going at that time. Uh, because it's hard to... We took a pilot from an idea, an offhanded comment, you know, that I think I had yeah. made or some, no, a, a guy in Minnesota had made. And then we bought the idea from Scott Hansen. One night, and Holly Henson was the other person, one night stand up. One night stand up. A That's dating right. show with Whitney Cummings. We got her in TBS and just our luck. Her first they got, pilot. The guy at TBS was brand new. We, we got a brand new president after the president that liked us got it, and then he didn't want anything to do with it. Which happens often. But yeah, yeah, it but happened I, to me on my pilot for a sitcom with Les Moonves. But I think one of the things that was amazing about working with you guys, because, and obviously things run their course, but meeting with you and saying, like, we're going to do this, we're going to make it happen, we're going to sell shows. Right. And I remember, I think we went into our first meeting <laughs> with David Martin, who's now uh, the president, I think, of Avalon Productions that do Workaholics. But he was at Fox Alternative at the time. And we went in and we did something very unorthodox, which is rarely done. We pitched two ideas in the same meeting and he bought both ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went forward, like within a year later, we yeah. did one night stand up the pilot. And it was yeah. like, like I said, you know, it's just about believing yourself and thinking it can happen. If you have great ideas, anything can happen. I Anything. You know, um, just to. You know, because I think comics listen to this podcast. So they do. And artists and uh, other people. So just for people to know some stuff, because they, you know, comics are struggling out there. That's what it's all about. They're struggling like mad because they're, they're looking outward. They keep doing all this searching that's outward. And it's and on social media. None of that. I mean, and social media is a great tool to market yourself, but social media is not, you're not going to find your way on social media. You're not going to resurrect a, a, a sitcom on social media. You're not going to, you're not going to find redemption on social media. You know, you're not going to, you're, you're lucky. You're, you've got to go inward and you've got to have help to extract what you're trying to do. You know, how, how many times have you seen a comic on TV um, I know who I'm going to use. I'm going to use Chris Rock. It's a good example. How many times have you seen Chris Rock in a movie and go, ah, he's good, he's likable, but he's not, it's not, 
and I love Chris Rock. For those of you people who don't know much about Chris Rock's history as a stand-up, in the beginning, Chris Rock was a guy who was a teenager. He probably, if he weighed 125 pounds, it was a miracle. And he would go on stage with the mic in the mic stand, a stool next to him, a pad of paper or something, and he'd just look down, look at it, do some of the bits. And he was seen by uh, Eddie Murphy one night on an open mic night, I believe, in the 80s where he was doing a signature piece, one of his first five-minute pieces he ever did in his life, very apropos for today, how, and again, I'm paraphrasing, how Fat Albert was a racist cartoon. And he talked about all the characters and how those characters were created in a racist manner. Who created Fat Albert? Bill Cosby. Very controversial, risk-taking bit. Right. You don't do a bit like that thinking, hey, everything's going to be all rosy and everybody's going to love it. But one person in the crowd did love it, and that was Eddie Murphy. And he became known as Eddie Murphy's protege, and that launched his career. Once that happened, Eddie put him on a special. He was thrust into the marketplace colleges wanted to book him at their schools but as you know what happens when you first start off maybe you have five minutes of good material another five minutes of whatever maybe another five minutes of something you came up with on a pad of paper yeah when you go to a college they want you to do an hour (laughs) so he's going out to these colleges making money has his pad of paper standing there and he's just doing jokes that he'd written probably that day which doesn't normally go over that well so he started off with all this this hype and all this great stuff yet he had to catch up to that hype a very rare exactly. a very rare thing when you did the tonight show if i could be so bold even though you were young you knew that you were ready you yeah, were, I had you nine were, Tonight Shows ready. You were bad. The first Tonight Show. Did you know that? No. I had nine <laughs> six-minute Tonight Show sets prepared so, so for the Tonight Show. So Louie was battle-tested. Right. Chris Rock was discovered before he was even he was yeah. even ready. And that's what's amazing before we talk about the things that you're talking about with Chris Rock. When the, I want to talk about the amazing thing about Chris Rock as a stand-up. Normally, when that happens, you disappear into the woodwork. Right. Because you can never catch up to people's expectations. And what happens is he changed his style as a comic when he had his first hour special. He went off on the road, worked on a persona, had the philosophy look, you know, I've been dressing in jeans, a t shirt, you know, I don't have sneakers. I've got to go out there and look like a leading man. I've got to act like a leading man. I've got to move like a leading man. I've got to be a leader of men and women up there. And so he transformed his stand-up to even a higher expectation than it was. And every stand-up specially does. The goal is to be better than it was before. I remember I had a conversation with him. I said, I mean, you know, that last special, man, you did seven minutes of Michael Jackson material. And I was kind of like ribbing him a little bit because I thought to myself, This guy has his get-out-of-jail-free card. He's done it. 
he paid his dues and we were joking about it. he was talking i actually said to him i said look i'm supposed to your balls because let's face it you can do anything you want yes it doesn't matter that there's 27 comedians that do michael jackson jokes but your Michael Jackson jokes are the best, and I love them. I was just shocked that you did them. And he said, yeah, Barry, you know, it's like, look, you know, I feel it. I feel a certain point of view. I'm going to do it. And there's these expectations that people have on me. As Jay Moore says when somebody doesn't laugh at one of his jokes, he looks out of the crowd. He says, hey, what did you guys write today? <laughs> and so when you're doing movies, this is another thing that happened with Chris Rock, in my opinion. And if you were sitting here, I would have the same conversation. Chris Rock's first movie he ever did, in my opinion, was the greatest performance of his career and most every other comedian's career. I believe it was called New Jack City. And Chris Rock played a crack addict. And you know when you know somebody has a great performance is when somebody who's in that world tells you they did a great performance. And I used to represent a young man named Charlie Barnett who was a crack addict and who was noogie in Miami Vice the first season and was the guy with curlers in his hair in DC cab. And he comes into my office at like 9 in the morning all disheveled and like smelling of this weird stuff. I don't know what crack is. And he says, Barry, I got to talk to you. He used to talk like that. I said, what is it, Charlie? It's nine in the morning. I couldn't sleep, Barry. I went to see New Jack City last night. I said, yeah, what, what about it? Chris Rock is what's at it, Barry. I'm like, what are you talking about? He was in the movie. He was in the movie. Barry, Chris Rock played a better crack addict than I am a crack addict. And I am a motherfucking crack addict. And I thought to myself, wow, if this guy is saying that he's great, then he's great. But every performance after that, you have to try to better that or do anything you can to be greater and so what you're saying is if he's in a movie and people might say eh, i'm not sure that's what i was expecting or whatever it's because number one those who saw him in that movie know how extraordinary he can be certain things you do for respect certain things you do for the cash and that's the way it is i think you'll find his latest performances you'll find are much greater than the ones uh, before but the fact is is that there's these expectations of people do this extraordinary work as a stand-up and they're winning Emmy Awards and they're doing all this stuff. It's hard because you do look at things sometimes and you do feel that way. And I want to hear what you want to say about that, why that is and how that is, because your insight is going to be very valuable. Well, where I was going was a similar place in a sense, but Eddie Murphy can do anything he's funny he's he's developed a comedy actor acting character he's eddie murphy he's he is that character you know chris rock i don't think people realize this but for me chris rock's a serious actor absolutely he's not he's not a comedic actor so when he is put in a situation where he has to be funny as a comedic actor, it's a wash. 
It's a compared to who he is as a stand-up and the whole thing. And I don't criticize. Listen, I'm the last guy. I'm a terrible. I'm the same way. I'm a. I'd be a really good dramatic actor or a certain character, but I'm not a comedic actor. I'm not like the silly actor. I'm not John Candy, and I'm not saying he was a silly actor, but I'm not John Candy. I'm not Chris Farley. That's not who Louis Anderson is. Louis Anderson's not that guy. Louis Anderson's Jackie Gleason-ish if he's going to do a thing. Or, you know, the, the more on the John Belushi, more of a serious, dark, comedic actor. Anyways, that, that's neither here. But I'm saying is, it's really important that you do what's you, because that's what will represent you forever and ever. So every time I tried to do something that wasn't me, it was a failure. It didn't go because people, you know, as dumb as people call the public sometimes, they have the perfect eye for authenticity. Yes, they do. And if something's authentic, and that's why they like these reality shows, because these people are authentic. Because what people are really looking for in life is the truth and authenticity of a person. That's what you want. That's what you want. That's when you go, am I going to trust this guy to make this deal for me? Yeah, he's authentic. I trust this guy. He's authentic. He's going to make the deal. The worst thing is, is, and what I was trying to get to was, as a comic, you need help to get to your authentic place. Here's, is it Chris D'Elia? Chris D'Elia from Whitney? Yeah. He's yeah. A, over here at, he's at the Mirage coming up. That's a beautiful job for him to have that big room. That's a big thing seats, yeah. when you're a comic to get on the strip at the Mirage. That's a big thing for anybody. Um, so remember when he was in the okay. first sitcom, he was a character that wasn't so much him. I only remember three things. Glory days where he was either recurring character. Whitney, where he was the lead with Whitney, and now he's on Undateable the lead in that, although it is an ensemble. I don't, I don't remember another. Yeah, thing. but I mean, Chris has to be Chris and you like when Chris is Chris, you can't take your eyes off him. Can you, as an actor, he's funny, he's great. And you can't take your eyes off. Him. So when people are in roles that aren't them, Jay Moore, when he was in uh, Jerry Maguire, <laughs> you can't take your eyes off him because he played the character perfectly. He was, I'm not saying Jay is that guy, but Jay knows that guy. I mean, that's why Chris was able to play that character in New Jack City. He knows that guy. But I'm not sure Chris knew those guys in those other movies he did. But in this one coming up, Chris is playing a character that's a comic who was a big star and he's trying to get it back again. What I'm saying is, it's really important that you find the people that can help you find your authenticity. And Chris Rock, I saw him on an interview on Sunday morning, and he t and he's he's at great peace with who he is in every way. And that's the thing I've always enjoyed about Chris Rock is he he's really just a really great human being. You know, like you can sit and just talk with him. And but he said really something really sweet. You know, he's got two little girls or two young girls or. I don't know how old they are, but he has two daughters. And he said his wife, uh, he said, you know, when he said working on a new special or working on new jokes. And he goes, it's hard to go out and work on new jokes when you have a house and the kids go to bed. 
He said, because it's so quiet there. <laughs> <laughs> and every parent will know what that means. He goes, because it's just so great. He says, God must be around a quiet house where there are children. <laughs> and I just thought that was an ironic thing and a real mature thing to say. But um, the point I was trying to make is get yourself in a situation where you can be authentic and stick with that and stop trying to be a comic that is saying nothing. I agree with that totally. I will say something about that that Louis knows. He knows that there is also this rare breed of comedians out there, probably 1% of 1%, who have the ability to not only be themselves in certain things, but have the ability to transform to other characters and also have the ability to have that muscle that is a different muscle than stand-up, the acting muscle. Right. And it's just completely natural to them. They can weave in and out of anything. And I think Robin Williams is a great example of and that. And Jim Carrey, too. I think. Jim Carrey is people who just... You don't even know what it's like. They're channeling things from another lifetime. You don't even know what. I don't think they understand what's happening. I think or why they're it's happening. they're uh, they're the fifth element. You know what I mean? They've got an extra deal yeah. going. And so when you, as an artist or an audience member, run into somebody like that, it's almost like unfair. It's I, I Louis. Uh, That's a good but because this is how people felt about Robin. When he'd be up on stage, it's not, it's not fair. It, it's it, not fair that he's that good. You know, you're looking around. It's not, you're looking for someone. Hey, it's not fair. God. I entered. What, <laughs> what's he get that for? I can't do that. Oh, I interviewed Byron Allen for a, a podcast and we talked about, but he's a fascinating guy. He was the youngest guy ever to do The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was actually asked to do it when he was 17 and he turned it down because he promised his mom that he would finish high school and enroll in college. But I we talked about going on at the comedy store and, and Robin Williams. I said, well, it's like, how do you handle going on after Robin Williams? And he said, you bomb. That's what you do. You just accept it. You're going to bomb. There's no way to succeed. And I thought about you, and I didn't mention something. I'm going to tell this story to my audience because I don't know if you ever told it. And again, tying back in to adversity. Yeah. This is how Louis Anderson always figures out a way to tie in and figure out a way to win in the toughest situations ever. So Mitzi Shore had this thing with Louie where she loved Louie, but Louie was a planter. He would plant his feet a lot of times, and the microphone would be in the stand. He would move sometimes, but most of the time, he was specialized in just planting there and delivering the content. And Mitzi would love him to close the shows in the main room, the 400-seat prestigious greatest room in comedy at the time. And she had a habit of doing something right before Louis went on. And that was putting on Jim Carrey. And so not only is the last spot in any comedy club not what you think it is, in another comedy club, you'd be the headline spot and whatever. In her comedy club, it was the headline spot. What they don't tell you in the world is that there's also checks that go out at times like that. 
There's things they're trying to wrap up the checks, wrap up the business, and the headliners on sale. So not only is it hard enough you have to go on after Jim Carrey, but you have a spot where people are going like, gratuity? I didn't order gratuity. What the fuck is this? Well, you know, people are like, and you have to tie it all together. And this is a story you told me because I asked you, Louis, how do you follow Jim Carrey and do well? And you say, I have a little tip that I used to do. And I'm going to tell the audience the tip that Louis Anderson did the kill after Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey would go on one of the few white comedians in the world that could get a standing ovation in a comedy club. Black comedians, no problem. They seem to be able to get standing ovations everywhere they go in those days. White comedians, not so easy in comedy clubs. However, I'm sitting across from a guy who got many standing ovations. So Jim Carrey used to do this closing bit of Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda on, on Golden Pond. And he used to do the head bobbing and the shaking and do the voices. And he closed with this bit and destroy and say, thank you, good night, get like a standing ovation. And then the host would naturally come on because there's no time, you know, because you're running late. And they just bring on Louis Anderson. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Louis Anderson. Right when the people have just gotten this huge standing ovation. And this was how Louis told me he won over the crowd. He would walk to the microphone. There'd be no applause by the time he got to the microphone because they were dead with his... Be like, oh, thank you so much. I can't do your voice. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, listen, that was amazing. Let's have another round of applause for Jim Carrey, everybody. And then the crowd would applaud hugely, like this huge applause. And it would finally die down like 12 seconds later. Later, he walked back up to the mic and he'd be like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. God, that was really good. Let's have another round of applause for Jim Carrey. <laughs> And then the crowd would applaud again a little, a little less. <laughs> and then he would go back up to the mic after the applause died down and he'd say, oh, thank you. You know what? That was just so amazing. Let's have another round of applause for Jim Carrey. And I, he said, this is my philosophy was I would get the crowd to hate Jim Carrey <laughs> and not want to applaud for them at all. And then so I got... Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it them fresh at zero zero and then i could win them over and then i would go on do my thing i would get a standing ovation and they'd remember me it's true i had to do a lot with sam kennison that was the hardest guy sam kennison i would just keep going sam sam come on back sam i know you're back there he's back there sam just give him five more minutes 
Sam. <laughs> Sam. He won't come out. He doesn't like you guys. <laughs> Sam. He has contempt for you. Otherwise, he'd come out here. I've never seen Novation like that. And here he is in the back. Sam. <laughs> and it was the only way that I could weasel my way back into the crowd. You can't get it otherwise. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, Louie, listen to what we're going to do. We're going to go way, way back, if you don't mind. I like to go way, way back to the very beginnings on this podcast. It's very inspirational, and we like to talk about the journey. So we're going to go way, way back. Tell me about the first moments, whatever happened in your life. How old were you? Where you were growing up? What kind of family life you had? What it was all about? Where you sort of knew in your mind... I want to be in entertainment, but describe a little bit about, you know, your family life and, and what sort of, because you talked about the pain and the brokenness of comedians and how it all works. And so tell us all how, how you got to that place where you thought I could do this in the entertainment business. Um, well, I was born in um, 1953 and we lived in the projects. We're the third family to move into the Roosevelt Projects in St. Paul, Minnesota. And you know, Minnesota Projects are a little different. You know, there's lawns and they're nice. And, you know, people have pride. People had pride in them. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, it wasn't as, it wasn't as like the Chicago where it's, you know, was beat down. You know, it was a rough, it was brand new. And to us, you know, we have a family of 11 my dad was a alcoholic, but I worked all the time. He never left, so he was there, but he drank a lot. And my mom was a saint, and she just really knew a mother hen, and she just had babies. She had 11, 16 children. Five died, two sets of twins and the first baby. They died at birth? Birth, yeah. And so... So she had... 16 children. So she was pregnant most of her married life with my dad. She said the only time she got a vacation is when she had a baby because she was in the hospital for a week, which yeah. was a really great. My mom was super funny, super, wow. super sweet, super funny. So two alcoholic parents. No, my mom was an alcoholic. Got it. My mom was just a foodaholic. Um, but she really took care of us. And my dad was the most interesting man because he was a very famous musician in the early 1900s with Hoagie Carmichael. We had a picture of Hoagie Carmichael and my dad at the piano. You know, he was a trumpet and cornet player. You know, I heard about his fame my whole life, but by the time I was born, he was 50. He no longer played the trumpet. And, you know, he was uh, in the big stage of his alcoholism. And Hoagie Carmichael came to our house in the projects. And Hoagie Carmichael is like David Foster or someone... Even more, he's even more, David's a songwriter and composer, but he's even more like a, I, I don't know how to even, uh, he was like, um, I'll just say David Foster. People understand what that is. Yeah, but he David's was, won about yeah. probably 20 Grammy Awards for Yeah, producing. he's like, a, you know, he was, he was a big arranger and composer. And he wrote, and he wrote Stardust, which was a huge, big romantic hit back then, but... So my dad's career was well over, but I had heard 
all about his fame all the time. And I was named after my dad, even though they called him Andy. My dad's name was Louis also. And so I was this fat little kid around 10. I think I started getting fat. And, you know, there was a, a lot of abuse. My dad was very abusive to my mom and my brothers and sisters. Not so much to me because at 50, he was not so much there. He was more abusive to my mom. Verbally or physically? Both. Very verbally abusive to everyone, including me. And so you... Now you'd think with uh, all those kids, you'd all gang up and beat the crack out of your dad. Well, you would think that, but you know, that's like uh, dragon slaying. You know, because when you grow up in an alcoholic family, that's a dragon that lives there. But you think... But you you can't breathe fire. I mean, when the dragon... You know, if you... If somebody's afraid of you when they're two... They're still afraid of you. You're still afraid of them when you're 20. You don't, because that fear grows, and also it's your father. So it's a really unusual dilemma, and it's common in abuse. Look at women who are abused. But you're saying so that if you and your brother and a sister happen to be be around and you see your dad lay a hand on your mom, you don't. Well, that is your what, dad and well, get, that is what well, we tried as little kids would even do it. Well, he would always he didn't always do it when there were big kids around. So, you know, when you have a 20 year span in your family, right, some of the kids are gone yeah. by the time you're born. So but my brother finally did said that if he ever hit my mom again, that he would kill him. And so that that changed the household. But that's like having a, you know, a, a molten lava, you know, volcano sitting in a chair. Well, that doesn't it, make anybody less verbally abusive. That's true, but... And you know verbal abuse is 10 times worse than the physical. Yeah. Because there's no... Uh, there's... It's insidious. Verbal abuse, belittling, that's like a surgeon with a scalpel. So your what, psyche. So what operations did your dad do on your psyche? Well, I mean, you know, he just destroyed my self-worth. You know, you know, you're worthless. You're, you know, uh, my dad would wake us up in the morning and, you know, yell at us, right? For the, Louis, when are you going to lose some weight? You know, call me lardass and all kinds of things. Um, I was really a tough kid, though, in a lot of ways because I, I was not, you know, I was basically a smart aleck. You know, if he say something, I would, you know, I wasn't afraid to, like he'd say, uh, get the, um, what are you, I say, why don't you get us the Oreo cookies? He goes, just get the Hydrox. They're the same thing. I go, well, why don't you get the cheap beer then? <laughs> That's great. You know, at a young age, you know. And so I think I fought back that way. And then, you know, there was another side of my dad that was a wonderful person, which was the horrible part. You know, here's the guy when we would check out at the grocery store, he'd be putting some groceries aside for a neighbor who wasn't doing well. So there's this this guy who would help you out when he wasn't drinking. But when he was all in drinking, he was blind to the to everything. Did he ever hit you? He cuffed me in the back of the head once, but never really hit me. So he left you mainly alone. Me and my brother, he left us mainly alone. Why do you think that was? I think he was tired. 
Was he? I think he. I think he. I think you. I think you run your course with your life, don't you? Maybe. Was there ever a child that he left alone? I think he left. I, well, I don't. I don't think he ever hit my sisters. And no, just my older brother mostly, and then my some of my older brothers. So how but, does that translate into knowing that you want to be in the entertainment business? Well, it doesn't. I never wanted to be in the entertainment business, Barry. Really? No, never once did I think I'd be in show business. That was never my desire. I never knew that. Yeah, well, I, I don't talk about it too much, but I wanted to be president because I was so powerless in my life that I thought I needed to have that power of the presidency so nobody could push me around anymore. When you're a fat kid, you get pushed around a lot, but I always made friends with all the bullies and gave them funny lines to say about other people. <laughs> you know, I was a writer at a young age. But, um, and I always hung around with adults. You know, I was the kid who hung around with the adults. When my mom would talk to her friends or people around, I would just sit with the adults and listen to what they were saying, you know. So when was the first thing that happened that made you want to give up the presidency? Well, I was always funny. People always laughed at what I said. <clears throat> but what made you want to give up your quest for the presidency? Well, I became a social worker, believe it or not. And I started working with uh, at-risk kids who were abused like I was. And we had worked on a shelter. And so I worked there and it was, you know, I was really good at it because I had been there. So... You know, a kid would say, I want to kill everybody. And I go, can we wait till after lunch? <laughs> <laughs> because nobody had ever said that to that kid. You know, they would want to restrain him right there. I go, can we wait wait till after lunch? And, and the kid would laugh. And I go, this is, you know, the kid's just saying it for attention. And then I made him laugh. And so he, I diminished his, his so-called power, you know. And uh, so I just tried to... Uh, you know, tried to be a, a really loving person in that situation. I think it's hard to be loving in those situations. So one night we're out at um, Williams Pub in Minneapolis on uh, Hennepin Avenue, having a beer after a kid throw his... A dresser out the window <laughs> like a six-year-old kid had a psychotic episode and lifted up his dresser and threw it out the window <laughs> and we all were quite frightened by that um so we went and had a beer a friend of mine jim o'brien who lives in chicago with his wife kathy and um they were both counselors on the unit they were great and we were drinking a beer and these comics were on. They had Monday night comedy. And I go, these guys are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my friend Jim said, well, you're funny. Why don't you try it? And I go, I will. He goes, when are you going to sign up? I go, I'll sign up right now. <laughs> you know, when you're drinking. So I signed up with uh, Jeff Gerbino, who's still my friend. And, um, and I th made that comment, these guys are terrible. I don't think because I was even listening, but we were just trying to talk and they were doing comedy, that kind of a thing. And they all became friends with all of them. But I signed up that night for next Friday at the home club, Mickey Finn's, a tiny little 50-seat place. 
And I went down there and I told all my family and all my friends and they all came down and I did a bit. I, I said, you know, uh, what was your first bid? I can't stay long. I'm in between meals. <laughs> And it got a nice big laugh. See that joke the, about yeah. the obvious that you yeah. did, we talked I guess, about? I just so you always have to have a joke. <laughs> you should have a joke that scores right away if you can. Absolutely. Because it just it just makes you in charge. But also, if there's something about you that people are thinking when they're looking yeah, at you. They it makes are, like, yeah, they are. So if you're a comic like Jay London, if right. you know him from Last Comic Standing, yeah. who looks like wears overalls and looks homeless, you're going to say something like, hey, I know what you're saying. This guy looks like the fourth guy from the left from the on the evolutionary chart, <laughs> you know, and then you just move on. Right. It's true. You know, if you, you know, the most important thing is to connect with your audience. So that's a big connection. So you got to laugh right away. And then I was too close to the mic, way right on it, like I'm doing right now. Just my friend goes. Jim says, Lou, hold back, hold back. I go, listen, I'm doing the best stuff I have. I can't hold any of it back. And I got a big laugh with that. And my mom was there, my dad was there, and my family was there. And I did three or four minutes, primarily fat jokes. I remember writing them. You know, when I was born, I weighed 60 pounds. The doctor had to bring a crane in. This is the real, uh, you know, elementary jokes. Um, you know, I was the first kid voted and most likely become a block. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, what was your big closer? Um, I think uh, my big, let's see, what was it? Oh, Fat Olympics. <laughs> the, the Fat, fat Olympics. Olympics, yeah. Where I go, I, I, I'm going to get into the Fat Olympics. <laughs> I, I just did the Fat Olympics is what I said. I'm going to... Um, I'm, uh, let's see, the pole vault. I drove that sucker right into the ground. I said, I did a good thing at the Olympics, so I straightened out those uneven parallel bars. And then I said, broad jump, killed her. And that's the, that's the joke that killed Johnny Carson. He hit his desk five times. So... It was just, you know, like, those were jokes I wrote. I always wrote jokes about fat jokes. Like, my favorite fat jokes were the one I did on The Tonight Show where I said, I know what you're thinking out there. I say, people say to me, there's how the joke went. Louis, why do you do all those fat jokes? I go, you know why? Because uh, if I don't, people will be sitting out there going, do you think he knows he's that big? <laughs> Like, I got up one morning, and I go, oh, my God, Mom! Mom! <laughs> you know, so... Oh, um, and then I did it, and I, I did it that Friday, and the newspaper was in town. I, in town, the newspaper was doing an article on stand-up comedy because it was just starting to get really hot in the late 70s there in Minnesota. And so because it was my first time, they focused on me, which infuriated all the comics. And the PBS station was there <laughs> filming. And so I became popular immediately. Similar to Chris Rock before yeah, you had it anything. it was that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, they needed me because we only had five comics, five, six comics. So you needed to have a show. We all had just 20 minutes. At the very most, I had 10. So I'd MC, and that's how I was able to build my material. I would MC, and then I was a little like Rickles. I was not 
a, I was not, uh, I was not a comic who, uh, was like, I am now, I was a little more like Rickles. And then I used to work with this guy, Roman DeCare, God rest his soul, sweet guy. He played low harmonica. He was uh, really like a father image to, uh, figure to all of us. And he, one night I was talking on stage and I said, is it you here with your dad? And the guy said, yeah, I go, that's your dad. He goes, I go, my dad never hit us. He carried a gun, you know? And then I got that. I go, he never shot us. He just go. <laughs> and that got a big laugh and I was surprised. But that was me saying how my dad really treated me. And I came off stage and Roman said, Louie, he talked like that. Louie, you should do the clean act and you should do the stuff about your family. You become a big star. And I was listening and I said, you're right. I don't know why I knew he was right, but I was. I was better at doing the clean act. The clean act sat well with me. It just... It flowed from me. I'm a people pleaser. So I wouldn't want to upset somebody with dirty remarks. So I did that. What was the dirtiest joke you ever told? Oh, you know, it was not like that. It was just I would attack people kind of. Oh, I got it. Like yeah, Rickles. Yeah, yeah, like Rickles. I wouldn't really tell dirty <laughs> jokes. I mean, I I'm, I usually screw up dirty jokes. I really am not. Like sometimes I have to ask people, what is that joke? What does that mean? So you start doing well in Minneapolis yes. and start getting a name for yourself yes. in the area. And then when do you decide it's time for me to go to L.A.? Well, I didn't want to go. And tell me what coincided with you knowing that you never had to work another day job again. All right. So I quit my job after I was making about 100 bucks a week doing comedy at the most we'd make like you know we'd split the door so and then we'd pick up extra gigs we had comedy going seven nights a week you know at the different places so then i kept doing and i quit my day job and i just uh we would the guy jeff Gerbino was really smart so we bring bigger acts and we brought leonard barr in who was dean martin's uncle on all the roasts and the dean martin show then we brought um then we would go see comics. So we went and saw, one night, we went and saw Rodney Dangerfield at the Carlton Celebrity Room. And I said, we should bring Rodney something. And I read up and found out he likes scotch. So I got a bottle of Glenn Levitt scotch. And we got balloons, believe it or not. Welcome. We love you, Rodney. And I go, we should do the balloons and we should do the thing. And, you know, give them backstage for him. And so that we did. And then um, Rodney uh, had us back stage. And he was so touched by the fact that he gave him the, that scotch that for the rest of his life, he brought it up to me. No one ever did that. You know, that was a good move, kid. You know, so Rodney said, so I said, Rodney, why don't you come down to our club? We have a late show tonight. We didn't have a late show, but we planned to have a late show because I thought if we could get Rodney down. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So then I called all the press as soon as we got out of there because he goes, yeah, maybe I'll stop down. I gave the information to the people or Jeff did. I don't know who did it. But so we called everybody and said, there's going to Rodney's coming down to our little club, 50 seats, no bigger than this suite you're in. So and so a big limo pulls up and all these people get out, but not Rodney. He pulls up in a Pinto and gets out of the, <laughs> you know, keeping with this thing. And the press is there and the cameras are there and the writers are there. And he, and we go up on stage, he comes in and sits down and we all go up and do our act. And I go up last and I thought I really was doing good. And then Rodney went up on stage. Wow. And then just showed us. He goes, you work in a place like this means you got no act. <laughs> <laughs> right? But we stayed friends forever after that. And he called me and said, I'm doing a young comedian special. But this is, that's a little ahead of the time. But so that's what, that's how, why I decided. Because after that show, Rodney said, hey, you should head to the East Coast. And I go, it's so cold there. So he said, we should go either to the West Coast or East Coast. He goes, you're ready. And then Joan had seen my act and Leonard Barr and Henny Youngman. I Joan Rivers. Rivers. yeah. Henny they, Youngman and who was the other person? And uh, Leonard Barr, Henny Youngman, yeah. Joan Rivers, Rodney Dangerfield all saw my act and said, hey, you should, you're good. You're great. You should go. Well, I always say this, relationships, everybody. And I, I want to say something about what you did. And I want to talk specifically to not only the comedians, but anybody out there, because this is a very, very important thing. So I always like to talk about relationships. And if you are anybody in this business doing anything or any other business, the most important thing in my mind is treating people how you would want to be treated. So you know how you feel when somebody gives you that gift and, you know, if you're like me, you don't really expect there or anything in return or hear anything in return. But if you get a thank you note, that's an added bonus. My mother used to write thank you notes for thank you notes. But if you're a comic, let's just take the comedy world. Or and, but in there just for yes. the thank you note thing. Yes. So Boone and Erickson is the top show in Minnesota. WCCO goes all over the Midwest. They interviewed everybody. A big thing if you're a Minnesota entertainer, get on the Boone and Erickson show. So I did it, and I had a ball, and I was funny, but mostly I got on Boone and Erickson. This won't mean much to everybody, but everybody's got a Boone and Erickson wherever they are. 
And uh, so I was on it one more time again after that, before they uh, disbanded. And he said, Louie, I've been doing this show for 25 years. I was president. I was senators. I had movie stars. I had the biggest people all over the world on this show. You're the only person who ever wrote me a thank you note. That's right. And, and that and- never left me. My mom did it. So, I mean, she taught me that stuff. But I'm just saying that you were talking about relationships. And I just wanted to say, very, reaffirm very that same important. thing. If you are listening to this and you've listened to anything that I've said that means anything, like write a thank you note, get some stationery with your name on it. It'll cost you less than it costs to eat at soup plantation. Okay. Get the stationery every time you're anywhere with anybody that means anything to you. Just sit down that night, write a handwritten thank you note, put it in the mail and send it to them. I guarantee you they will remember you forever and always know how you were. And if you have the resources and even if you don't, figure out a way to get a little gift or something for somebody who did something special in your life. And they will always, always remember you. Look at what Rodney Dangerfield did for Louis Anderson. Look at what happened. Do you think he would have gotten backstage without the scotch or the balloons? Do you think he might have gotten to L.A. or gotten the favor on the HBO Young Comedian special with his talent? There were a lot of people who were talented. And I think Louis might say this as as confident as he is about his ability as a stand-up comic. There's only a certain number of slots on the HBO Young Comedian special, especially the ones that Rodney hosted because he hosted every other year. Maybe eight spots every other year for his. I'm sure Louie would sit here and say there were comedians who were worthy of those spots just as much as he was or close to. Maybe even some that he might consider were worthy more who never did the HBO Young Comedian special. And Rodney made a point of saying to me, listen, I want you to headline that spot. Wow. Wow. But that was also, do you want to hear the story about that? Can I just tell a quick thing about that? No, you can't tell a quick thing. (laughs) I'll tell a You tell the story how it should be told. So I got the gig. I'm so excited. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.